uh, for many years. He just switched recently. He was for the New England Patriots. Uh, so far, he has accumulated six Super Bowl championships, more than anybody else in NFL history. By many, he is considered the GOAT. I don't know if you know what the GOAT is, greatest of all time stands for in pro football. He is at the top of the sports mountaintop. Um, from an achievement standpoint and from a world standpoint, um, people would consider him to have attained it all. Um, he has money, he has fame, he has success, he has the respect of his peers. He is married to a supermodel. He has healthy, happy children. He lives in a mansion, and on and on his achievements, quote-unquote, go. After his fourth Super Bowl, when he was, he made a video. And in that video, he said this. You know what my favorite ring is? The next one. The next one. Tom Brady isn't content. You said, well, he's maybe just driven, and he always wants to accomplish more. And I'm sure there's a, a part to that. But let me tell you, even though he's driven and has accomplished all these things, in 2005, in an interview with 60 Minutes, he said this about his life and career. He says, looking back over all his attainments, he says, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be all it's cracked up to be. See, Tom Brady is restlessly searching. He, he is looking for satisfaction. He's scratching his head while every finger on that hand he's using has a Super Bowl ring on it. And all that goes with it. Um, he's asking the question, maybe the question you're asking. Is there more than this? See, unfortunately, Tom Brady's experience is not by any stretch unique. I mean, none of us have six Super Bowl rings and all that he has. But the experience is, uh, the experience of not being content. See, we live in America, we live in a culture basically without contentment. Marketing and everything about our culture breeds discontent. Um, you, have you ever heard of the little phrase FOMO? It stands for fear of missing out. I like to change it because I think even more accurately, it would be find one more obsession. Uh, that's really our culture. We move from the next biggest thing to the next biggest thing. And we're waiting for the text to go off. The first thing that the average person, they say, grabs when they get up in the morning is their phone. And you're looking to see what text you've got and, and look at the emails you have coming in. You're constantly thinking about what your friends are doing, what's happening in their lives, what's the next thing taking place in politics. And you know, it doesn't take a lot to look around at the constant connectedness that we have in our culture through social media and the discontentment and realize that that's the explanation for the fear of missing out. It's part of what means to be discontent in our culture. You take all of that and much more, and you contrast that with the words in our text in chapter 4 and verse 11, when Paul says, completely contrary to what our world would be about, he says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Eric Raymond wrote a book called Chasing Contentment. And in that book, he offers this definition. He says, contentment is the, and every piece of this is important, contentment is the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. In other words, 
all the things he brings into your life. Let me say it again. Contentment is the inward, gracious, quiet spirit that joyfully rests in God's providence. When I was growing up, my sister Michelle, who was directly older than me, my middle sister, she played the trumpet. And so when she went to high school, public school, um, she was in the band and the orchestra. And so when I was like, I don't know, 10, 12 years old, uh, I wish I can say I went willingly, but I was forced to go to concerts. And so I've done a number of concerts in my day. And so when I'm sitting there as like a, a fifth or sixth grader waiting for the concert to get started, truthfully more waiting for it to get over, um, I thought it was always strange as a little kid because, you know, they end up playing all these beautiful music together. But before anything ever started, all the people had their instruments out there and they just randomly started playing. And it wasn't like a song they were playing. It was just their instruments were all going off at the same time. It didn't make any sense. And then my dad, I said, Dad, why are they all just playing random stuff that doesn't make any sense? He says, it's the tuning process. That's what they do to tune their instruments so that when they actually play the music, they can all be on the same page. And see, the purpose of my message this morning and why I believe God brought you here is he wants to take your life and put it through the tuning process. He wants to see if you and him are on the same page, see? And, and a lot of people, even God's people, see, we're not. We have discontentment, and we tried to downplay it and at times even hide it from ourselves, but God wants to say, I want to tune your life to my word. I, I want to tune you to the truth of contentment as how God sees it. And so perhaps your life's out of tune today. And my hope is as this passage of scripture will help you to get back into tune where you ought to be. And, and if you're going to tune yourself into God and contentment, there are three notes you're going to have to learn about. Okay, three notes. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. We'll unpack them. The first one is you got to know something about the source of contentment. Where do you get it from? Because this is crucial to start with. Because when you read what Paul has gone through and how he was content, you're going to go, that's impossible. You're going to go, that's not, there's no way that could ever be me. So, so let me start with how it's possible first. The source of contentment. If you know much about the Bible, you'll know that Philippians is one of four epistles. Ephesians, Philippians. Uh, Ephesians, Colossians, Galatians, those four are called the prison epistles. So when you read Philippians, everything should be read in light of this, that Paul's writing it from a prison cell. And you got to get this, that prison in the first century was not like the 21st century, right? I mean, they have beds and nice things. People give them food. We pay a lot of tax dollars to have people in prison. That wasn't so in the first century. They didn't give you a nice place to stay. They didn't give you any food. If you were going to have any well-being and have your needs cared for, you would have to pay for it yourself. And if you couldn't pay for it yourself, you'd have others pay for it. And if nobody paid for it, you didn't have any and you went without. That's how it worked in the first century. So Paul writes this epistle about contentment. He writes it from a prison cell, depending on other people just to continue to live. The craziest thing about this text and the entire epistle, writing from prison was how many times he talks about joy. In our, our text, he says it in chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4 and verse 10, our paragraph starts with this, I rejoiced. Now, now how, how is it that you have joy in jail? Seriously. I mean, even if it was 21st century jail, I think it would be a struggle to have constant joy, wouldn't you? But, but Paul does. He has it. Now listen, he didn't just write this letter from prison. He started this church 
from prison. You remember how he healed the girl from the demon and they threw him in jail and they beat him and they tortured him, him and Paul and Silas, and they threw their feet in stocks. And it was an awful situation. But you know what the Bible says if you read Acts 16? When he started this church from a Philippian jail, right? The Bible says that at midnight when they were in an awfully excruciating, painful position, after they had been whipped, at midnight it says Paul and Silas began to pray and they began to sing How is it possible? How do you live that way? How do you have those types of circumstances? You know how you have it? Well, he says it over and over again in chapter 4, in the Lord. That's the source. That's the source. Chapter 4, verse 1, he tells people in the the church at Philippi, stand fast in the Lord. Verse 2, agree in the Lord. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Paul says of himself, verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord. See, that's the key contentment hear me contentment comes from the inside out not the outside in do you see what he's saying see biblical contentment is not circumstantial is not situational is not dependent on what's going on around you it is based on what's going on within you see this morning the million dollar question is this how can people like paul and silas who had been beaten and tortured, put in stocks, how could they go through those circumstances, endure those circumstances, and find it within themselves to lead a prayer meeting and a singspiration at midnight in such pain? How do they do it? Well, the answer is, they were content. They were content. In what? In the Lord. Our verses, verses 10 through 13 of chapter 4, starts with a little phrase, in the Lord And it ends with the phrase, in him. Can I tell you this? Just as frank as I can, you will never find lasting contentment if it's not in the Lord. Never. It's like Paul's trying to say, let me show you this contentment sandwich. On the bread on the top and the bread on the bottom is in the Lord and in him. And you know what the little prepositional phrases that also begin with the little word I in, in between? They're the hard ones. He says, it's not just in the Lord some pious thing, some spiritual thing. No, it's in real life situations because the verses in between have these little phrases. In whatever situation. You see how all-encompassing it is? In whatever. And then he says, and in any and every circumstance. You see those phrases? So I wrote this down. The only way to be content in any and every circumstance is if you're connected in the Lord in any and every circumstance. See, your connection should result in contentment. That's the key. You have to have, you have to be hooked up to the right source. You have to be synced to. You have to be in tune with Jesus. Otherwise, you'll never have the contentment in your circumstances and situation. That's why biblical contentment, I call it, is counterintuitive. Here's what I mean by that. And I know you've experienced this. So often we think in our lives that if we could just change our circumstances, then we'd really be happy. Have you ever thought that? I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one. So, so we focus on believing that. We focus on our jobs. If I could get that promotion, if I could get that next level of pay, that next position, that title... And we focus on our health. You know, if I didn't have this chronic issue and I wasn't going through these health issues, and if I had all of this would just disappear, I would be so happy. We talk about our relationships. 
how better things might be if our children behaved when we asked them to. I mean, the problems at church, if they would just disappear. If I, my physical appearance, if I, if I was skinny, if I was beautiful, if I was muscular, if I was... And we believe that if we really could just change our circumstances, then we'd be discontent. And we say, maybe not out loud, but to ourselves, if my situation would change, then my life would really be better. But you know what biblical contentment is? Biblical contentment is far more powerful than just a change of your circumstances. Far more powerful. Instead of being sourced on the outside, is what you're living for when you believe that lie, that your circumstances would do it for you. Instead of being sourced on the outside and subject to changes and situations around you, see, when you find it in God, it's an inside source. It's the Lord that lives within you, and you can have it despite whatever is going on around you. See, there are really two people, two groups in life, people who have internals that control their externals or people whose externals control their internals. And contentment will reveal which one those you really are in life. See, Paul had joy in jail because he had joy in Jesus. The connection resulted with contentment. So let me tell you how it works if you want a formula. The greater the connection, the greater the contentment. Paul's life was so solidly content and connected to God that even jail and torture and beating, which we have never experienced and most of us probably never will have to get to that point, but he had such great connection with God that his contentment was great as well. But to flip it over, because equally is true on the other side, the lesser the connection, the lesser the contentment. So if you're here this morning and you find yourself... And, and you're discontent, and, and you're bitter, and you're upset, and you're angry, and you want to have your circumstances change because you think that's what it's going to do for you. God says, no, what you need is not change of circumstances, but a change of heart. Because the little amount of contentment is because of the little amount of connection. And that usually is caused by this. I call it Counterfeit connections. We connect ourselves to things in life other than God because we think if we had that, then we really do it. That would do it for us. And so we connect to money and all the stuff that we can buy. Another trip to the mall, another box in the mail from Amazon, another gadget, another technology toy, and on and on the list goes. A different car, a better house, sex, people in our lives relationships, success at our jobs, fame in this world, unbelievably good health, possessions, popularity. See, if we, we connect to those things, and we do whatever it takes to have those things, not knowing that in the end, comparatively to God, they are shallow and surface satisfactions at best. See, count, let me put it this way. Counterfeit connections will produce counterfeit contentment. See? Counterfeit connections will produce counterfeit content, contentment. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 2, verse 11. He says, My people Israel have committed two evils, two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain, see, the source. 
the connection. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out for themselves broken cisterns, holes that were meant to contain water to preserve human and animal life, Broken cisterns that can, they have holes in the bottom. And see, that's what money and sex and people and success and health and possessions, you know what they are? They are broken cisterns that promise everything, but they can't hold the water to keep you satisfied. It's a counterfeit connection. Jesus, it was prophesied of Jesus. This text is about him. Psalm 16 and verse 11 It says, David writes, in your presence, God, is fullness of joy. Not just joy, fullness of it. And at your right hand are not just pleasures, pleasures forevermore. You want full satisfaction, lasting pleasure? It's only at God's right hand where Jesus is. Hebrews tells us about contentment and warns us with these words, Hebrews 13, 5. It says, be content with the things that you have. Why? Because God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The reason we can be content no matter what we have or don't have is not based on circumstances. It's based on God's presence in our life. But that will mean nothing to you if there's not much of a connection in your life to him. Paul says in another text in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says, if we have food and clothing, let us there be content. And the reason is, read the text for yourself, it's because we have God, and he is our greatest gain, it says. So if you're going to be in sync with God, you're going to tune yourself to the truth of contentment. The first note you're going to have to learn to play is you're going to have to know something about the source of contentment, that it isn't outside of you, it's inside of you, it's God, if you know him. Secondly, can I tell you this? The second note you're going to have to learn to play is about the situations of contentment. And there are two of them in our text. Two of them in our text. Verse 11 reads this way. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. Paul had needs. For I have learned, (coughs) I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low, number one. And I know how to abound, So let me just say it to you straight because you might have this question running through your mind already. Contentment does not mean, hear me, does not mean that we should ignore problems or pretend that they don't exist. That's not what contentment, contentment is not that I'm somehow numb to these things and, you know, I just walk through life and nothing ever phases me. That's not Paul. Paul knew and had problems and difficulties in his life. In fact, his difficulties were so great that he needed people from the Philippian church to meet them. He couldn't do it on his own. He wasn't self-sufficient. He says he has needs. He uses the word needs in verses 11 and 12. It's not the same word translated need twice in verses 16 and 17. This is a different word. This is the word in the Greek that means to fall short. Believe it or not, The word need in verses 11 and 12 is the same word used in Romans 3.23 when it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, Paul says, you know what needs are? Is when you lack something. When you would like to have this, but you don't have it. Paul says, that's what I'm experiencing. I don't have the food I need. He may not have, often in other epistles he said, bring this coat for me because now I'm cold in this dungeon and I don't have a coat. Sometimes he needed parchments because he didn't have parts of the Bible that he was trying to work on. He needed things. 
Paul needed things. And sometimes the Philippians could meet his needs. Sometimes they didn't have the opportunity and they couldn't meet his needs. But listen to me, listen. God does not expect you and I to go through our difficulties and our problems and our fears in life like some sort of robot. He doesn't expect us to go through life and never feel anything or ever be affected by anything. No, we cry at funerals, don't we? We are concerned about our finances if we're people without a job. We're concerned about our future and what's going to be a month a year or farther down the road. It matters, and it should matter. And, and it, it's, it weighs heavy on our mind, and it should weigh heavy on our mind. We feel sad, and we feel angry at times when things take us by surprise, things we weren't planning on, things that aren't good. And that's normal in our lives. God doesn't expect us to be robots. But listen, he does expect us, if you're a believer, that in those times of difficulty, to trust him. And our definition says, in, in all of the providences that he brings in our life, we should rest in him. And Paul learned to do that. See what he says? I have learned to be content. Aren't you grateful that even though contentment doesn't come natural, it doesn't, does it? It comes supernatural. That's why you need the connection See, the connection brings the contentment. And if you don't have the connection, you don't have the supernatural ability to have it in every circumstance. You might say, Pastor Walker, but why would God allow this to happen? Why did he bring this into my life? He wants you to be content in him. He wants to teach you, if you'll let him, through every circumstance you face. He wants to teach you how to be satisfied in all that God is for you in Jesus. And Paul says, in the classroom of contentment, I have learned two lessons. Two lessons. I know how to be brought low. See verse 12? And I've also been taught, and I know how to be in abounding. So Paul says this, I've learned in life that sometimes I don't have enough, but I'm okay with that. Sometimes I have way more than enough, and I'm okay with that. He says, in either one of them, I can be content. You see, he could say, I could eat a burger or eat at a banquet, and I'm okay either way. I could have a lot or I could have a little, and it doesn't change me. See, I could be at the mountaintop of my life or at one of the darkest, deepest valleys of my life, but I'm still the same person. I'm still content. See, in really, really good times and really, really bad times, he says, here's what I've learned That it's not what's going on around me, but what's going on within me that makes the difference. You might say it this way. Paul had an ambidextrous faith. You know what I mean by that? When you're ambidextrous, it means you can use your left hand equally as well as your right hand, or whichever hand is your, you know, if you're right hand or left hand, you can use the other one just as equally as well. I don't know about you, but that's not me. I mean, I have a, okay, I can throw things and do things left-handed. I mean, it it, it looks awful, and it is awful. I don't have the same thing going on with the left hand that I do on the right hand at all. One is way stronger than the other, and I'm afraid that that's true in our Christian lives. I mean, some of us have a right-handed faith, and when things are going really good, and the waters are smooth, and the clouds are in... 
no clouds in the sky and the skies are blue. Man, I got the right hand. It's working. But you know, the clouds roll in and there's a little tremble on the ground, a little shaking going on, and things get bad. You know, the left hand, it's a little awkward, that left hand, and my faith comes off. Paul says, you know what I learned over the years? You know what you have to have? You have to have both if you're a Christian. You have to have contentment be so powerful in your life because of your connection to Jesus that whether it's good or bad, it doesn't change me. Not because one isn't harder than the other, but it doesn't change me. Job is a perfect example of that. If you read the first opening verses, verse 1 through 5 of Job 1, Here's what you'll know. Job was abounding. He had more than enough. He had so many animals, so much stock. He was so wealthy. He was one of the most prominent men in that area of the world at that time. He had it all going. He had so many good children. His children got, loved God. And, and all, everything, you couldn't, he was living the dream. He really was. But then you go to verse 6 to 22. He's not living the dream. He's living the nightmare. Because one after another... He loses everything he has, all of his animals, all of his wealth, all of his children. And the only one he has left is his wife. And that isn't much of a thing going on with her. Right? She says, curse God and die. I mean, that's not a lot of support going on. I mean, so he goes through, I am abounding. And Job would say this, I know how to be brought low. And and get this, but Job had an ambidextrous faith. You know how I know it? Listen to this. These are his words. He says this, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Did you hear that? Oh, the right hand was strong. The Lord gives. We are always good with that, aren't we? Blessed be his name. Oh, I'm so, yeah. And the Lord takes away. And that, you know what, fill in the meaning for him. Everything you own and everyone you have. And you know what he says? Still I say, blessed be his name. I still say in it. You know why? Because he had learned too in the school of contentment that it wasn't what went on around him, but what was going on within him. You might say, Pastor Walker, how do I know if that's my faith, if that's my contentment? Do I have both sides of it working? Well, the chapter ends with this phrase. Ready? In all of this, Job did not charge God with wrong. How can I measure whether I have this kind of contentment? Can I ask you, here it is, how do you respond when things don't go your way? How do you respond when all the things you didn't want to happen actually happen? You don't get the scholarship and therefore you don't get to go to the school and college you thought you were going to go to. You You haven't got pregnant yet and 30-something is right around the corner. You're still single, and your options are seemingly fewer all the time. You didn't get the promotion. You're not getting the advancement, and you may be in a dead-end job. The interview that you really look forward to, they haven't called you back, and it's been way too long. Your medical test you were hoping would be negative, it turned out positive. Now you don't know what you're going to do. It changes everything. How do you respond to those things? See, here's what Job did not do. He didn't blame God. And can I say it politely? There's a difference between complaining to God and complaining about God. A big difference. See, 
This week, I would guess, none of you have ever complained about wearing a mask, right? You, you've never done that. Not this week. Having to put it on. Did you ever get out of your car? You walked up to the grocery store. You get to the door. You go, ugh. And you had to walk all the way back to get it again, right? You've never complained about that, right? Social distancing. This is ridiculous. You'd never say that. Restaurants, stores, school starting. <laughs> it's one thing to complain to God. God, why? What is going on? See, when you complain to God, because you're connected to him, you might say, how long? But it's always supported by this trust in God, believing he hears you and loves you. But there's another kind. When you complain about God, which Job didn't do, that's marked by a betrayed, eroding trust that really is doubting pretty highly whether God hears at all or loves you whatsoever. And it doesn't say how long. It says, how could you? So it's important, isn't it? If we're going to be tuned to the truth of contentment, if we're going to be synced up with God, then we have to know a couple notes. We have to be able to play them. And the first note is i got to know about the sources of contentment. Secondly, about the situations about contentment. But thirdly, I have to know about the strength of contentment. And you got to know this last one because without this one, you're not even sure that the first two are possible. I mean, how could this really happen? I mean, how am I going to... And not that it wouldn't happen occasionally, but Pastor Walker, are you understanding what I'm going through? I mean, how is it that I could be this way every day? How could I, be, how could I do this long term? Verse 13 says, famous verse, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Christians, can I say it? Christians interpret, misinterpret this all the time. I mean, Stephen Curry has it on his shoes and on his shirts. And, and, I, and I know in general God does that, but that's not what this... This is not a generalized statement about God giving you strength for whatever comes... It isn't that. This is a very specified statement. And a specified statement... The all, I can do all things through Christ. You know what the all things in the verse are? The things he just talked about. He, here's what he says. How in the world can I abound and be abased? How can I suffer need and have food? How, how can I go without and have everything? How can I be content in all of that? He says, you know what? The, it's through Christ. Those are the all things. I can do all things. I can, no matter what circumstance, I can do it. How can you do it? Because right now, you're probably saying, that's impossible. You're making the excuse in your mind. I can hear it all the way to the pulpit. I am not the Apostle Paul. I get it. I'm not either. You might say this. You don't know my life story. You don't know all I've been through. You've never been through things like that, and you're probably right. Paul has. And you would say, I can't do this every day. And I would say to you, you're right, because you can't. But that's what verse 13 is all about. God wants you, if you'll be connected to him, if you'll let him teach you in the classroom of contentment, here's what he wants. He wants to exchange your I can't with his I can. That's what he wants to do. My professor in seminary said this in the Bible, all means all, and that's all that all means. So when he says, I can do all things, let me clear it up for you in case you're thinking about this. He doesn't mean all means the situations and circumstances of average people, but mine aren't average. That's not what he means. 
He doesn't mean just a few things. No, he means all things. Not just the most or the easiest ones. No, all of them. All the ones, even the ones you're facing right now, all of them, yes, the impossible ones, the chronic ones, the most painful ones, the ones that just never seem to subside or go away, and the ones that even, in fact, at times get worse over time, yes, all those. I can do all of them. How? Two power words. I can, him who strengthens me. You see, it's not just, listen, listen, it's not just like when you upload on Microsoft or Apple and you get a patch. You know, you get a computer and you get a virus or a bug, and so they upload this patch, to your, this power patch to your computer, and it just kind of like, and gets in, you know, in a minute it's done downloading and you're, you're good to go. No, it's not a power patch that you need. It's a power person that you need. I can do all things through the infused mystical, no, through Christ. See, the transfer of power that you and I need to face situations that are beyond our ability to be content does not come from ourselves. It does not come from outside any of, any of us, anytime, anywhere. It comes from a transference of power that is not distant, but imminent. It's a God who's close. It comes from a God who suffered like we suffered. I can do all things through the Christ, the one who was crucified on a cross for me. Paul's entire ministry was marked by this strength. Paul was preaching Jesus for the first time after the Damascus Road, and in Acts 9.22, it says that he had to be let down on, in a basket over the wall And then he went into the synagogue the next day and started preaching Christ. And it says, this is a few days after he's saved. Now they want to kill. He was killing Christians. And now people want to kill him for being a Christian. And you know what the Bible says? And the Holy Spirit strengthened him. That's the same word. From the very beginning of his ministry, Paul never had the strength to do what God asked him to do. And that's why God gave him the strength. 1 Timothy 1.12, as he looks back at the beginning of his ministry, years later, he writes Timothy to encourage a young pastor in the ministry. He says, and God was faithful to me, giving me the strength and putting me in the ministry. You know how he did all that he did? And you look at Paul's life and say, oh my word, how could he ever do all that and suffer like he did? He did it through someone else's strength. In the middle of his life, and that's what Philippians is, in the middle of his life, after a couple decades of ministry, you know what he's still doing? He's still relying on the strength of God. He doesn't know what this prison sentence is going to result in, but he says, I can know this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, who strengthens me. At the very end of his life, probably somewhere around three to four months before he had his head cut off for the faith. You know what one of the last things he says in this world 2 Timothy 4, 17, he says, Everyone else has forsaken me, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. See, it's not a detached power upload that you're getting when it comes to Jesus. No, he stands by you. You are never alone in the struggle for contentment. You are never alone. 
He is right there, and he is infusing you with his power, his strength. The verb in the text is an active voice, and it means this, that he's always doing it. And as much as, if you're always connected, you always have access to his strength every moment of every day and every circumstance. And your connection can result in contentment. He can change your I can't, and he can turn it into an I can That's what he's after. Perhaps God has you here today, and he wants you to think through your life and the various circumstances and situations that you're facing. And he wants to ask you a question. Where do you get your contentment? Some people find it at the bottom of a bottle, at the end of a needle, or in someone else's bed. And here's what he says to you, and you'll never find it there not for long because you'll need a new girlfriend and you'll need a new high and you'll need a new bottle of wine because it never has meant it was never meant to and you're fear here and you have settled for counterfeit connections and as a result counterfeit contentment you might be asking like tom brady did is this really it i mean i have this and now is this it or is there more And maybe, just maybe, the level of contentment that you're facing is because you're not connected at all. You're just not connected to Jesus. You can. You can know him. You can know him in satisfaction on a level that you've never found before. Not based on circumstances or situations. If you'll put your faith in him. If you'll trust in him. If you'll repent. And you know what that means? To turn from your counterfeit connections. Jesus says, if you come to me, I'll quench every thirst you've ever had. And I'll feed, feed every hunger you've ever experienced. Read John's gospel for yourself. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water The woman at the well thought she would never find contentment until she met Jesus. And maybe that's what you need this morning. You just need to meet Jesus. If you haven't never met him by faith, you can this morning by putting your trust in him for the forgiveness of sin. If you're a believer this morning, if you're a believer, let me ask you, how's your contentment? Is it one-handed or is it two? And maybe... Maybe you need to have a greater connection so you can have the greater contentment that you're looking for. Let's pray. Father, contentment is something we all struggle with, some more, some less. But it's bred into our society on every level. And being a Christian doesn't make us immune from it. What gives us the strength we need to overcome it is our relationship with you. And I pray, Father, for believers here today who really are going through a difficult time and they're struggling. They're not robots. But they need to trust you, that you're a good God and all your providences are good. Oh, Father, help them to see you. 
Help them to see you for who you are and what you offer them in Christ Jesus if they'll only stay connected to you. The strength that they can have that's way beyond their own. And perhaps there are some here today in our auditorium or listening in live stream who are discontent to the point where they're not sure they can go on. Father, I pray that today they would repent of finding it in counterfeit places and come to you with a broken and contrite heart, brokenness, because these sacrifices, Lord, you do not despise. And may you heal them with the grace that is in Christ and with it the contentment that can only be found in him. And we'll thank you for that rich blessing in his wonderful name, Jesus. Amen.